and hello everyone. Welcome to yet another exciting episode of the New Discourses Podcast. This is James Lindsay. Today we are going to discuss the true history, the true origin of intersectionality. So if you are a student of critical race theory or identity Marxism more broadly, uh, or if you are a frequent listener to the podcast, you'll know that I've talked about intersectionality a lot. You'll know that it's a massive buzzword in the society today anyway. You'll know that it's being incorporated and is used as a justification for all kinds of woke nonsense. You'll know that somehow it's the engine of woke nonsense in many regards. You'll understand basically that intersectionality means that you're going to have to consider all the different factors of identity-based oppression and other forms of so-called oppression, all of this being various aspects of neo-Marxist thought all at once. And to understand that each form of oppression is it can only be understood in light of all of the other forms of, impre- of, of, of oppression. So, for example, that it wouldn't be possible to understand racism without understanding how sexism is intertwined with racism and vice versa. You'll know that it is the, uh, the name intersectionality came from Kimberly Crenshaw from her 1989 paper. Um, what was it called? demarginalizing the intersection of race and sex or something like that. I don't have that in front of me. That's not the point today is not to go through that paper, but that's where she argues that um, industries like General Motors, for example, would be able to, and she, she wrote this law review article in 89 that I just mentioned, and General Motors was one of the things that she pointed out in that paper Uh, but that they would be able to hire, for example, lots of black men to work on the factory floor and lots of white women to work in the offices and thus be able to discriminate against black women who would be hired for neither position. Uh, And so they could be discriminated against. Black women could be specifically, and race-based discrimination wouldn't be able to catch it if there are enough black men hired for for a particular sector, I guess, or another sector of work within the uh, workplace. And Uh, discrimination by sex wouldn't be able to be identified because there's enough white women being hired in some other sector of the workplace. And so not only, though, would you be able to have this kind of discrimination loophole, which is an interesting point that I think, I still think, deserved and deserves legal scrutiny from a liberal and responsible perspective. She goes on to say that there are additional factors that black women, for example, uh, face in terms of discrimination. For example, they would um, be able to experience all of the stereotypes of being black, all the stereotypes of being a woman, and simultaneously specific stereotypes of being a black woman on top of that. So in addition to not knowing, or sorry, in addition to being able to fall into this loophole of discrimination, there are specific ways that they could be discriminated against that that amplify their discrimination uh, or the potential for their their discrimination and thus their uh, identity-based or neo-Marxist-based oppression. And then furthermore, they face the additional, additional complication of not knowing which of those things, race, sex, or their specific uh, intersected identity category is the reason for the discrimination. And so this is the birthplace of intersectionality. I think I've done it a fair, uh, a fair justified, uh, justified uh, explanation of what it is uh, without poisoning the well for what it is. Um we in here on the podcast this is why I said you'll know at the beginning of that kind of discussion uh, and here on the podcast, the new discourses podcast, I've read through the introduction and conclusion to Kimberly Crenshaw's follow up paper from 1991 
called mapping the margins, which I said is where the one ring and the intersectional ring was forged, the one ring of uh, solidarity-based, in other words, neo-Marxist or identity Marxist uh, identity politics. And so when we talk about intersectionality, we talk about Kimberly Crenshaw. Kimberly Crenshaw is also famous for having named critical race theory, uh, which she did also in 1989 at the... Um, what was it? The first meeting of the critical race theorists uh, falling out of the calamity of the um, critical legal studies movement after in 85 or 6 they came in and uh, racial justice advocates working within the critical legal studies movement came in, accused everybody everybody there of being a racist and the movement itself of being a, race, a racist movement. The predictable fallout occurred and then in 89 critical race theory comes into being after its first conference of a small number, 20 some odd people who identify itself, identify themselves as Marxists, uh, who studied critical theory, who also were racial justice advocates. Um, and Kimberly Crenshaw there coined the name critical race theory. And intersectionality is considered to be actually a fundamental aspect of critical race theory so that they're not really separable. But what a lot of people, so you know all that if you pay attention to all of my stuff um, or if you've been following along with my stuff. If you don't know that, there's lots of material. You can go check it out uh, here on the podcast or here throughout New Discourses website. There's lots of other material out there. Go go check it out. Catch up to speed with intersectionality. But what a lot of people don't know is intersectionality. You know, I'm not going to go so far as to accuse Kimberly Crenshaw of having plagiarized or stolen the idea, but it clearly came from something earlier. Now, we've talked here on the podcast in the past with the podcast about the birth of identity Marxism, or when we went, when we read through Herbert Marcuse's, um, well, Herbert Marcuse's new proletariat, or when we read through his, uh, 1969 essay on liberation, kind of lots of times recently, we've talked about how Marxism, Marxist thought developed through the latter half of the 20th century up until today, uh, so over the last 70 years or so, 60 years maybe, uh, and in that we have discussed that there was this need to cobble together from Herbert Marcuse, you know, kind of very radical neo-Marxist, critical theorist, critical Marxist, whatever phrase you want to use for them in the 60s. One of the most influential among them, by the way, with uh, hundreds of thousands of copies of his book sold, uh, big intellectual rock star of the time, member of the Frankfurt School uh full-fledged neo-Marxist. Uh, but we, we've discussed how he was he realized that the working class was stabilized by improvements in working conditions and the advent of the middle class under industri later industrial capitalism or consumer capitalism. And he hated this. So he had to find a new working class, he said, a new proletariat. And he said we would build that out of this kind of coalition of the ghetto population, that's his phrase, or racial minorities, and also sexual minorities, feminists, the unemployed, and general other societal outcasts. And so you see the seeds for the beginning of an identity politics movement within Marxism there. Now, so that's 1965, or four, I really should say, 1964, that's One Dimensional Man that gets mentioned there by Marcuse. 1969, it's definitely big in Marcuse's writing in 64, 65, that's Repressive Tolerance, and 69, that's Essay on Liberation. And then we jump forward to 89 and 91, we're talking about um, 
Kimberly Crenshaw, we can talk about the early 90s, and we can talk about Patricia Hill Collins, wrote a book called Intersectionality, laying this out. You can read in her book Black Feminist Thought from 1990, where she's going through the different stereotypes specific to black women, that this is the kind of core of what black feminist thought was. And so somewhere in between what you actually have historically happening is from the 50s going forward, there's a black liberation movement that's often recognized as either black power or black nationalism, those being kind of factions within it, that's in parallel to the so-called liberation fronts that were largely communist identity politics movements uh, in South America or in uh, Vietnam is the most famous, the Viet Cong would would have been uh, a liberation army, but Che Guevara led a liberation army, etc. So, you know, we're seeing a, a black liberation movement picking up in the 50s through the 60s, it's getting infused with critical Marxism by Marcuse's movement in through the middle of the 60s into the early 70s. Then there's this blank spot. And then we talk about the, the late 80s and going into the 90s and intersectionality coming out of this. And I've said on the past that intersectionality is the identity component of the new sensibility that Marcuse is calling for in Essay on Liberation. And in this podcast, this episode, what we're going to do is talk about the real birth of intersectionality, which is the piece that fits in the middle. So we've got the mid-60s, the late 60s, 64, 69. We've got 89, 91. We're going to talk about 1974 to 1977. Here, Black Liberation ends up having a feminist offshoot that's getting mixed in with uh, lots of neo-Marxist thought through this blending of the in the new left, which became increasingly academic following the early 70s collapse of the new left because it was violent and nobody liked it. And black feminism emerges then. Black feminism being this when we when we wrote cynical theories, when Helen Pluckrose and I wrote cynical theories, we were talking about black feminism and its relevance to to intersectionality and critical race theory, which is really where those were born, by the way. And our editor wrote us back and said, um, "Are you sure this isn't clear? You know, you call them black feminist so and so, black feminist Patricia Williams, black feminist." Patricia Hill Collins. And it's like, no, no, no. Black feminism was a movement that is where you had radical type feminists, in fact, Marxist feminists, who were black women who were also involved in black liberationism, that movement I was just describing. And so black, black feminism is this feminist co-optation and offshoot of black liberationism. And what it did was it accused white it would accuse feminists of being white feminists and said that it was racially tone deaf or racist. Same move we saw. I just mentioned at the critical legal studies thing, they came in and said, y'all are a bunch of racists. They did it the feminist first and it worked perfectly. But they also said that the black liberation movement was masculinist. And if you actually read through Crenshaw's 91 paper mapping the margins, you get that flavor over and over and over again. Why, what margins is she talking about? Well, the margins of the black liberation movement is the black feminism movement, because when it comes to a choice, do we act strategically in terms of all of black liberation or do we pay attention to this kind of fringe black women's issue within it? They would choose the bigger issue and marginalize black feminists. And when it came to feminist issues, they would go for overall feminist women's issues and marginalize the black feminists. So the black feminists were doubly relegated to the margins, and that's where intersectionality became uh, necessary and relevant, according to Crenshaw. So black feminist thought has kind of these two aspects. One is feeling constantly marginalized by the radical movements they are already a current in, and secondly, it's to be able to 
self-reflexively turn back against the movements in which they are embedded to get them to to pay attention to this minority within a minority movement, um, if you will. So to concentrate the minority oppression identity politics as a point of intersectionality and a black feminist thought, big famous black feminists that have been mentioned, you know, through my work in the past, most importantly, probably include Audre Lorde, in addition to the names that I've already mentioned, Patricia Hill Collins, Patricia Williams, Angela Harris is another really big one, Kimberly Crenshaw. Uh, there are lots of others, but uh, Bell Hooks is another very famous one whose real name is Gloria Watkins. But um, we have we have Audre Lorde is very famous for having said that you know, the master, she has this essay, short essay, a couple of pages long um, from the mid 80s saying the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And so the master's tools are all of the various tools of civil society, whether those are epistemic tools like science and reason and so on, uh, logic, facts. Uh, truth, or whether those are respectability politics, kind of political tools, civil society tools. And so she's claiming that black feminism needs to exist outside of those if we want to dismantle the master's house, which is the house of oppression, obviously making a reference to our entire society operating like a slave plantation where the masters, the, where the slaves have to take up tools, this being a direct kind of tie back to either Nietzsche or to Marx. The, the or to Rousseau or to Hegel, who were looking at the master-slave dialectic in their own ways and saying that the people in the, the slave position within the master-slave dialectic or on the master's plantation have to use tools outside of what the master considers acceptable to dismantle his oppressive system. And this is um, obviously very... Uh, Nietzsche covers this in Genealogy of Morals, and it, it's describing um, the subversion tactics. And then we see this, like I said, you know, not so much Rousseau saying that this is what needs to happen. Rousseau wanted to blend the two together. Hegel saw it as a productive dialectic. Marx saw it as the site of productive politics for revolution. However, this is a very different thing. Um, Hegel didn't necessarily think of himself as a revolutionary. He was trying to be a philosophical student of history and saw that revolutions occur, etc. But he wasn't trying to agitate for a revolution. He said that these would naturally occur. Marx actually wanted to create the revolutions. And so he saw this uh, kind of awakening, awakening a class consciousness as awakening that lower class to be aware that they need to operate outside of the existing system in order to break free of the uh, chains of the existing system. Critical theory takes it even further, as we've heard from Max Horkheimer in the past, that the critical theory, he said, was originally conceived, and he's the guy who named it. Remember that uh, critical theory is also known as critical Marxism, uh, to keep it true to its its actual commitments. But he said that one of the things that uh, he realized was the critical theory that Marx didn't understand is that the terms of the ideal society cannot be articulated within the uh, the, the terms of the existing society. So you have to completely separate yourself, or, or as his, his um, associate Theodore Adorno later put it, that the there is no way to cast a positive image of the utopia. You actually have to get outside completely. And you see this throughout Marcuse's work as well. These neo-Marxists or critical Marxists really truly believed that um, what you have to do is awaken a critical consciousness that makes you understand that the existing society is brainwashing you into your own oppression. And that only by realizing this is it possible for you to realize uh, 
the various alternatives that might exist, what what Marcuse referred to as certain historical possibilities that have become regarded as, as utopian possibilities near the beginning of repressive tolerance, his 1965 essay. In other words, communism. And so all of this is to say that what Audre Lorde is referring to falls within that pattern, within that tradition. Now, what I'm about to read to you in this episode of the podcast is called the Combahee River Collective Statement of 1977. The Combahee River Collective was the first major collective of the black feminist movement. It, Audre Lorde was a prominent member within the collective, along with a number of other black feminists of the 70s. It first convened in 1974, and they put out a manifesto in 1977 called the Combahee River Collective Statement. And the, the, this statement you're going to hear, I'm going to read the whole thing to you, is a perfect encapsulation of intersectionality. But this is 12 years before Kimberly Crenshaw ever wrote about it. It's before any of the nascent queer theorists and gender critical theorists of the 80s were talking about the intersections between sex, gender, and sexuality. This precedes it all by, you know, a decade uh, and for Crenshaw 12 years. And Crenshaw would have certainly been very aware of this statement and would have been very aware of the um, thought currents within Marxist black feminism. Because when we say black feminism, that's a it's a euphemism for Marxist black feminism, because as you're going to hear, black feminism was a Marxist movement from the beginning uh, and through and through. So today here on the podcast, we're filling in that gap between the radical identity politics, uh, sorry, the radical uh, neo-Marxist politics giving birth to the identity Marxist faction, the rise of identity Marxism, as I called it in the previous podcasts. Um in the late in mid 19 mid to late 1960s through and then we skip forward to the 80s and 90s and we see intersectionality emerge as the answer and right here in the middle lies the Combahee River Collective and their statement from 1977 so let's read through this and I'll give you the context as we go of what they're actually saying but I think it's going to be really clear what we're really dealing with this is a five page or four and a half page manifesto um, it's not particularly pleasant uh, but it tells you the whole story. So let's read through this together and discover. They begin, we are a collective. Of course, they are all collectivists. So just focus on, remember, that's why they're always talking about collectives, uh, which collectivists, right? So what that means is a so-called voluntary community where everybody has very strict community codes that they that they uphold and they work together in, in favor of the collective over the individual. So it's collectivism all the way down here. But we are a collective of black feminists who have been meeting together since 1974. During that time, we have been involved in the process of defining and clarifying our politics while at the same time doing political work within our own group and in coalition with other progressive organizations and movements. The most general statement of our politics at the present time would be that we are actively committed to struggling against racial, sexual, heterosexual, and class oppression, and we see as our particular task the development of an integrated analysis and practice based upon the fact that the major systems of oppression are interlocking. So I told you, intersectionality is all written through this, right? So you can hear the Marxism, first of all, integrated analysis and practice. That's the wedding of theory to praxis that Marxism is based upon. The theory and praxis are inseparable. 
Uh, if you recall from another recent episode of the podcast where we actually read practice and theory from the Marxist.org encyclopedia, uh, they, they literally, the Marxists literally tell us, you know, practice means an activity with a means and an end. Um, these words, practice, action, activity, praxis, labor, behavior are used with different meanings by different writers in different times and different languages. The crucial point is that for Marxist practice is inclusive of its mental, theoretical, or ideological aspects. The ideological or mental aspects can be abstracted from practice only relatively. The contrast between theory and practice is always only a conditional and relative one. Um, practice is active rather than being a passive observation, and it is directed at changing something that's Marxism practice differs from activity in general because practice is inseparable from theory. That's the key part I wanted to get to. Again, this is the Marxist.org encyclopedia or glossary entry for the term practice and theory, the relationship between practice and theory. So practice differs from activity in general because practice is inseparable from theory, which gives its means and end. So theory defines the means and the end, which are inseparable. While activity or behavior usually includes unthinking reflexes, practice is only enacted through theory and theory is formulated based on practice. Whenever theory and practice are separated, they fall into a distorted one-sidedness. Theory and practice can only develop, in, if only fully develop, in connection with one another. Human activity is always purposeful, but in the earliest stages of development of society before the development of the division of labor, there was no separation between theory and practice. So then their goal, they say, is to get back to a reunification of theory and practice. You can see that this is overtly a theological belief that the world was in this perfect state where theory and practice were in, un in unison. Uh, and then the uh, division of labor came along, managers were invented, and uh, with the division of labor came the separation of theory and practice, and the goal of communism or Marxist thought in general is to get back to a wedding of theory and practice. Um, and so you, you must understand that when we see in the Kambahi River Collective, they would understand this. These are Marxists. They would know that. So when they say that they see their particular task being the development of an integrated analysis and practice based upon the fact that major systems of oppression are interlocking, they are they are fully aware of what they're saying. They're full, they, they're not just using words. They're not just putting a bunch of standard kind of leftist, as people like to say, word salad. They know what they're saying. They're saying we are Marxists. We believe we are actually neo-Marxists who believe in who are taking up identity politics, who believe in multiple forms of oppression, and that they are all interrelated to one another, and that we must approach it in a, these in a Marxist way. And they are committed actively to struggling against racial, sexual, heterosexual, and then they mentioned class oppression, which is, of course, classic Marxism. So they're integrating those identity factors through what will become known as intersectionality. The inter integrated analysis systems of oppression are interlocking. So you can hear the inter intersectionality from its birthplace is, in fact, a Marxist practice. So when Kimberly Crenshaw, throughout all of her work, refers to, she says, critical race theory, or she says, sorry, intersectionality is not so much a theory as it is a practice. It's not meant to be a totalizing theory of identity. It's more of a practice. It's a sensibility. She knows what she's talking about. This is what she's talking about. She's telling you she's a Marxist. And if you don't understand these words as a Marxist would understand these words, you don't understand them. So this is the birth of, of intersectionality. By the way, just I forgot to mention this. This document is also the birthplace of the term identity politics. 
So when you hear identity politics and then people try to invoke the civil rights movement and say, look how good identity politics were then, they're lying. That was in 1960. Through 1964, late 1950s through 1964, uh, and five, and I guess it continued into 68. That's when when Martin Luther King was murdered, um, and so you know through the 60s you have identity politics, and then you have the ter- or sorry you have the civil rights movement, and then in 1977 you have the term identity politics named by the Combahee River Collective in the context of being Marxist intersectionalists, and that's what we're actually going to see here, but we shall continue reading. The synthesis of these oppressions, now pause, synthesis, dialectical thought, the engine of the entire leftist religion is dialectic. That's important to pause upon this, okay? Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. And so what they're looking at is all of the different oppressions, and they're seeing within them that they are in contradiction to one another. There's race-based oppression, there's sex-based oppression as they see it or there's class-based oppression, and there are these weird tensions between them. You know, is it racism or poverty that's causing the problem for certain, you know, racialized communities or whatever it happens to be, and that this forms a kind of contradiction? So those are your thesis and antithesis. The problem is sex, or sorry, the problem is, is poverty? No, the problem is race. The problem is sexism? No, the problem is racism. And so they're looking for a synthesis of these oppressions to create kind of a synthetic hyper-oppression that Everybody who wants to claim oppression in one way or another can shoehorn themselves into. So it starts out with race, sex, heterosexual. It starts with class, and then they add in race, sex, heterosexual aspects. And now we have fat status, ability status, mental health status, blah, 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 everything you can possibly imagine integrating into this synthetic blob of identity based oppression. The biggest most cope, most, most, I, I guess, what egregious, that's the word I'm looking for, example of this that I'm aware of is this AAPI acronym or, or even the LGBTQIA plus minus hot dog emoji 46912, whatever it happens to be. These, these synthetic uh, coalitions, very synthetic coalitions are the same kind of thing. You're cobbling together people, as Crenshaw mentions at the beginning of Mapping the Margins, to create a meaningful politics of identity that's made up of the many many voices of millions rather than the individual voices of a few, uh, because that's where a meaningful uh, coalition politics is going to be built. So this is all about building a coalition. So why did I say AAPI or AANHPI being the most egregious? Because I think it's one of the most racist conglomerations I've ever heard of in my life. AANHPI. What does that stand for? Asian American Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander. As one giant coalition... This is a, a focus group created monstrosity, probably by the Democratic Party or the Marxists running it. But who is an AANHPI person, right? What does one look like? What's the culture? What is AANHPI culture? So you have Asian Americans, you have Native Hawaiians, and you have Pacific Islanders. Well, that's three distinct groups, but it's worse than that. Um, because Asian American includes Chinese, Japanese, Vietnamese, Cambodian, Korean, Laotian. Maybe sometimes and probably not. Usually it includes South Asians. Uh, you have Indians. I mentioned, I didn't mention Singaporeans. Uh, it, it involves so many people from so many different cultures that, the, the, that then you're going to slam them together with Pacific Islanders. And then you're going to slam them together with Native, Native Hawaiians. 
and create one gigantic coalition of people who are definitely not one culture based on what? Well, that they have similar skin tones and kind of similar eye shape. That's it. Super racist. So it gets really worse. It's really, really bad. But that's what we're talking about. Synthesis of oppressions to create synthetic identity uh, coalitions that can be used for a quote to quote Krimberly Crenshaw, meaningful politics of identity. This is a Marxist front to use these identity categories and the people within them that they can agitate to do their dirty work for them so they can get the revolution. But nevertheless, the synthesis of these oppressions creates the condition of our lives. So this is hearkening. That's their statement. That's the Cumbie River Collective statement. And what that means is they're hearkening into the structural determinism argument. They're saying the synthesis of these oppressions so the matrix of oppression or matrix of domination, as it gets called later by, by Patricia Hill Collins in the 90s, all of the oppressions woven together in this neo-Marxist kaleidoscopic mishmash that they, they discuss under intersectionality creates the conditions of our lives. And of course, these conditions are meant to be material and cultural and psychic conditions that are morally determinant for them. They create the conditions of their lives that make them into who they are. They couldn't possibly be other. They couldn't possibly, uh, you know, have their own individual thoughts or whatever, because they have, as Crenshaw puts it, all of these identity categories and the oppression that comes with them imposed upon them from the outside that can't be avoided. So you can see that this is a Marxian class conflict type analysis, no longer using economic class as the basis, but rather using the synthetic cobbling together of economic class sort of plus all of these identity factors which obviously eclipse in importance economic class almost completely and which is very visible today when you look at intersectional activism and who, who's involved with it which is mostly rich white women um, to carry on as black women we see black feminism as the logical political movement to combat the manifold and simultaneous oppressions that all women of color face what you hear then is, as I said, this is just the first paragraph. That was just the first paragraph. This is the birthplace of intersectionality. It's blatantly obvious. You can hear the Marxian and um, Hegelian undertones. You can see the synthetic religion of the left, the dialectical synthetic religion of the left in operation. You know that the purpose is to create a so-called meaningful politics of identity that can create identity coalitions that are false uh, and like, no, not false, synthetic synthetic there it has a different feel to it to think of them as, as a synthetic unreal thing cobbled together for the purposes of doing this and you, maybe you don't believe me that this is marxist but we'll just like oh you're reading too much into it we'll get there don't worry they go on to say we will discuss four major topics in the paper that follows one the genesis of contemporary black feminism so we'll hear where it comes from two what we believe that is the specific province of our politics Three, the problems in organizing black feminists, including a brief history of our collective and four feminist issues, black feminist issues, I'm sorry, and practice. One, the genesis of contemporary black feminism. Before looking at the recent development of black feminism, we would like to affirm that we find our origins in the historical reality of Afro-American women's continuous life and death struggle for survival and liberation for survival and liberation and for survival and liberation Con continuous life and death struggle see the same hyperbole we hear in the black lives matter movement which is basically this uh 2020 and 2021 version 2015 to 2021 version is or 2013 i guess is 
you, you hear it right there. Continuous life and death struggle for survival and liberation. Of course, the communists think that you're not really surviving unless you're in a communist utopia. So there you go. But liberation is the key. Again, this is the Marcusean neo-Marxist uh, essay on liberation agenda being foisted into the black liberation and feminist movements and then being cobbled together into this synthetic thing called black feminism that spawned intersectionality. Black women's extremely negative relationship to the American political system, a system of white male rule, has always been determined by our membership in two oppressed racial and sexual castes. I told you, Kimberly Crenshaw just ripped this stuff off. As Angela Davis points out, Angela Davis, pause, not only is she this crazy radical that you know was involved in uh, holding up and I think kidnapping at shotgun point a federal judge or something like this, she goes to jail, uh, gets in trouble for this. Not only did she openly support Drink the Kool-Aid Jim Jones, which was actually a communist guy, and I've posted on Twitter many, many times, so you can go search my handle on Twitter and Jim Jones and Angela Davis, and you'll find this statement she gave by radio in complete solidarity with Jim Jones when he was in Guyana a year before he made everybody drink the Kool-Aid and commit suicide. Uh, Angela Davis was also the protege, the black feminist protege of Herbert Marcuse, who was her PhD doctoral thesis and whom she said radicalized her for the first of two iterations of her full radicalization. The rest of it happened when she visited Palestine uh, a bit later. She's still active today. She supported Joe Biden for president but we'll leave that to the side. So as Angela Davis incited and uh, so this is a direct link, by the way, since Crenshaw basically seems to have ripped this off between Herbert Marcuse through Angela Davis into uh, critical race theory and Kimberly Crenshaw and uh, intersectionality. So Marcuse finds her, finds his way in this way. By the way, also Ibram Kendi wrote in his, what was it, 2017 book, something like that, stamped from the beginning, the title's right, the year, give or take a couple. Um, stamped from the beginning is supposed to give the definitive history of racism in the United States from, from Ibram X joke Kendi, uh, Mr. Rogers there. And he, he, the book is absurdly long. It's like over 500 pages long. And a hundred of those pages are dedicated to Angela Davis. Uh, they are about Angela Davis. He is, she is one of five characters that Kendi sets aside to talk about as the definitive history of racism. Herbert Marker is a student direct connection into the CRT intersectionality anti-racism agenda of today. Again, so... As Angela Davis points out in, quote, reflections on the black woman's role in the community of slaves, black women have always embodied, if only in their physical manifestation, an adversary stance to white male rule and have actively resist, resisted its inroads upon them and their communities in both dramatic and subtle ways. There have always been black women activists, some known like Sojourner, Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, Frances E.W. Harper, Ida B. Wells Barnett, and Mary Church Terrell, and thousands upon thousands unknown who have had a shared awareness of how their sexual identity combined with their racial identity uh, to make to make their whole life situation and the focus of their political struggles unique. Contemporary black feminism is the outgrowth of countless generations of personal sacrifice, militancy, and work by our mothers and sisters. So you can see them trying to tie themselves into this very long history. Um, 
but nevertheless, you know, you, when you start talking about people like Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, and so on, you're, you're actually looking back into the situation of, you know, slavery still happening. It's definitely, you know, definitely still a more patriarchal society, as though those conditions are any meaningful reflection of what was going on in 1977 uh, when this was written. But nevertheless, a black feminist presence has evolved most obviously in connection with the second wave of the American women's movement beginning in the late 1960s. So that's what we would probably call second wave feminism, though intersectional thought because of things like black feminism doesn't like what they call the linear wave model where there was a first wave, a second wave, a third wave, and now maybe a fourth wave. They don't, that's a linear wave model. They, call, they don't like that. They want it to be more complicated, etc. So that they have a place for the, for themselves or whatever. Um, black feminist presence has evolved most obviously in connection with the second wave of the, the American women's movement beginning in the late 1960s. Black, other third world, and working women have been involved in the feminist movement from its start, but both outside reactionary forces and racism and elitism within the movement itself have served to obscure our participation. Does that not sound like Herbert Marcuse all over again? Of course it does. In 1973, black feminists, primarily located in New York, felt the necessity of forming a separate black feminist group. This became the National Black Feminist Organization, the NBFO. Black feminist politics also have an obvious connection to movements for black liberation, particularly those of the 1960s and 1970s. Many of us were active in those movements, civil rights, black nationalism, and the Black Panthers. So I told you that's those are exactly where they claim that they came from. And all of our lives were greatly affected and changed by their ideologies, their goals, and the tactics used to achieve their goals. It was our experience and disillusionment with these liberation movements, as well as experience on the periphery of the white male left, that led to the need to develop a politics that was anti-racist, unlike those of white women, and anti-sexist, unlike those of black and white men. So we fast forward again to 1991 with Kimberly Crenshaw's Mapping the Margins, and you hear exactly the same thing. I'm not saying Kimberly Crenshaw ripped this off, I'm just saying Kimberly Crenshaw ripped this off uh, 12 years later and catapulted herself to fame. There's also undeniably a personal genesis for black feminism, that is, the political realization that comes from the seemingly personal experiences of individual black women's lives. Black feminists and many more black women who do not define themselves as feminist have all experienced sexual oppression as a constant factor in our day-to-day -day existence. As children, we realized that we were different from boys and that we were treated differently. For example, we were told in the same breath to be quiet, both for the sake of being ladylike and to make us less objectionable in the eyes of white people. As we grew older, we became aware of the threat of physical and sexual abuse by men. However, we had no way of conceptualizing what was so apparent to us, what we knew was really happening. Now, let's pause. This was written in 1977 by adults. So let's assume they're actually probably in most cases older than this, but let's assume they're about 20 years old. We go backwards to their childhood. They're born around 1955 to 1960, just if they're that young when they're writing this. And so they were, as children, when they're being told to be quiet, still in segregation. They were still under Jim Crow. So to make us less objectionable in the eyes of white people, where, of course, that's where, like, that was a relevant thing. And, of course, the speaking up was necessary for the civil rights. And all of us who are, are sane and reasonable today accept that that was a necessity. But 
you can see how the conditions that were there formed a situation in their heads that has gone on many years later when that's not necessarily the same situation to cause them to be angry and to act in particular ways that maybe no longer apply in the decade following the civil rights movement and its success. And I always like to say this, we had no way of conceptualizing what was so apparent. We had no vocabulary to explain our oppression, which that's um, not true. The civil rights movement was doing actually actually a really good job of doing that. Um, Marxism came in and co-opted and gave them, this is how so many get, get radicalized into this, is it gives them a vocabulary that exaggerates and agitates them to take up a very radical politics when all they were really looking for was a way of articulating certain things that they felt. And then that double meaning game that the Marxists play is very influential and tends to co-opt and radicalize people. So just going to point that out. Black feminists, they point out, often talk about their feelings of craziness before becoming conscious of the concepts of sexual politics, patriarchal rule, and most importantly, feminism. The political analysis and practice that we women use to struggle against our oppression. The fact that racial politics and indeed racism are pervasive factors in our lives did not allow us and still does not allow most black women to look more deeply into our own experiences and from that sharing and growing consciousness to build a politics that will change our lives and inevitably end our oppression. Our development must also be tied to the contemporary economic and political position of black people. The post-World War II generation of black youth was the first to be able to minimally partake of certain educational and employment options previously closed completely to black people. Although our economic position is still at the very bottom of the American capitalistic economy, a handful of us have been able to gain certain tools as a result of tokenism in education and employment, which potentially enable us to more effectively fight our oppression. So this is what I was just now talking about with the radicalization and the providing of a bogus vocabulary that agitates and alienates rather than empowering. And that's the Marxist trick. So they explain that in the post-World War II generation, you finally start to have something happen and we start to have an opening up of racial politics in society. And they say that, you know, black people are finally able to kind of make a way in. And then so our economic position, they point out, is still at the very bottom of Amer of the American, what? Do they say the American economy? No. Do they say economic situation? No. American capitalistic economy. So all of a sudden, the Marxist term of capitalism gets invoked here to throw in a uh, a, a extra little nugget of locating the problem, not in terms of reality, but in terms of uh, where capitalism would ensure that these people in 1977 are able to obtain and hold and make use of their own property to build their own brand, to grow themselves to a position of success if they so choose, and yet they're blaming capitalism for their problem. Why? Because they got seduced by Marxist nonsense. But then they say a only a handful of us have been able to gain certain tools and how here's that Marxist vocabulary seducing and alienating them further to agitate them to be revolutionaries against the society that's giving them opportunity, for example, the opportunity to speak up like this, which they just admitted they didn't have before that occurred. Before we had the civil rights movement, they are already aware uh, before World War II in particular, they just said, basically, we would have no opportunity to stand up. If we were in a true white supremacy and systemically racist society, like they try to claim, the answer to a speaking up black person would be to shut up, with, probably with a racial epithet. So 
here in capitalism, of course, because capitalism only knows one color, which is green, um, as the saying goes, uh, what they're they're indicting the thing that allows them to to come out of it, and then the the, the language is even worse that they are only able to be given certain tools. They don't have full access to society, which is bogus, and it's as a result of tokenism in education and employment. Tokenism. So that's a that's a term of alienation and agitation. That the only reason that black people or black women are being hired in 1977 is for tokenistic purposes. The only reason that, whereas, you know, um, it's nothing about merit. It's nothing about, it's so funny because if you read things like, uh, like Shelby Steele's white guilt, you can see that that's actually the dynamic that these radicals were exploiting. The Marxists were exploiting and twisting people like university professors, et cetera. That's exactly what Shelby Steele reveals at the beginning of white guilt, uh, that he was involved in. Um, but no, it's tokenism. So they're, they're twisting people to, to help them rather than, you know, particularly, and I'm not trying to like say everything was perfect in the seventies, don't get me wrong, but rather than working toward building their, uh, building their capitalist foundation because they hate capitalism and they have to blame something outside of themselves. And then they're saying, Oh, well, it's just people who are tokenistic. So this is why in 1992, uh, Derek Bell considered the father of critical race theory can write faces at the bottom of the well, the permanence of racism. That's the title of the book, full title. And he can say that black faces are the faces at the bottom of the well. In other words, black people are still the lowest people in American society because they're held down by a racist society. But then, you know, very certain uh, tokenistic people like Oprah Winfrey and Will Smith and Arsenio Hall, and we could just go on Michael Jordan, Michael Jackson, we could go down the list. Um, All of these are just tokens. They're just tokens. And so this is a language of alienation and agitation, and it's straight up Marxist. Of course, it would be because these people are Marxists, as we will hear. They go on to say a combined anti-racist and anti-sexist position drew us together initially, and as we developed politically, we addressed ourselves to heterosexism and economic oppression under capitalism. In other words, they became more intersectional and took up Marxism. Economic oppression under capitalism, dead giveaway. But we won't need giveaways, don't worry. Two, what we believe. Above all else, our politics initially sprang from the shared belief that black women are inherently valuable. So they always have to put these stupid, stupid, obvious statements so that if you challenge them, they'll then accuse you of challenging that. The shared belief that black women are inherently valuable. So this is, this is all kinds of messed up already. And you think, what are you doing, James Lindsay? Why would you be saying that that's messed up to say black women aren't inherently valuable? Nobody's inherently valuable, by the way. (laughs) Nobody is special. What they're actually saying is that black women get to have inherently special status and they're going to be treated as such. Why? Because they're black women. Uh, They're inherently valuable. This is actually kind of a standpoint epistemology view that they bring something inherent to the table, but there's a double meaning here in that all human lives share something in common. You know, if we were religious, we'd say that they're image bearers of God made in the Imago Dei. Uh, if we were um, just normal humanist type people, we would say that all human life is valuable and everybody potentially has something to contribute. But they're d- playing off of that double meaning there. And they always do this. 
They always do this. So that if you then say, well, I don't know about all this, they say, well, you're just saying you, I, I reject the Combi River Collective and what their, what their agenda is. They'll say, well, we started with the belief that black women are inherently valuable. What do you have? What problem do you have with that? That's just what it's about is that black women are inherently valuable. Meanwhile, inherently valuable has two meanings. One of which is the one that everybody would agree with. That's a basic statement of human rights that applies to all people. This, does this sound like Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter? It is. And then the other one is, no, they're particularly special. Uh, they have inherent value in the fact that they bring this intersectional perspective to the table. Okay, so above all else, our politics initially sprang from the shared belief that black women are inherently valuable, that our liberation is, is a necessity not as an adjunct to somebody else's. This seems like there might be grammatically... Uh, wrong here uh, in this copy, that our liberation is a necessity not as an adjunct to somebody else's may because of our need, maybe it's may be because of our need as human persons for autonomy. There's something missing there anyway. That our liberation is a necessity not as an adjunct to somebody else's may because of our need as a human as human persons for autonomy, I read it exactly as they're black and white. You can try to figure out what they're actually trying to say. This may seem so obvious as to sound simplistic. By the way, it's probably a Marxian hand, uh, tip of the hand that there's a double meaning there because now they're going to say it's nuanced and complicated. But it is apparent that no other ostensibly progressive movement has ever considered our specific oppression as a priority or worked seriously for the ending of that oppression. So you see it. We're extra special and nobody actually cares about us. We're doubly oppressed. So everybody who cares about oppression now has to care more about us. And you see the moral extortion uh, at the heart, the moral racketeering at the heart of intersectionality here. Merely naming the pejorative stereotypes attributed to black women, for example, mammy, matriarch, sapphire, whore, bull dagger. So by the way, these are the... I think that's five of the six that Patricia Hill Collins talks about in Black Feminist Thought in 1990. So original. Let alone cataloging the cruel, often murderous treatment we receive indicates how little value has been placed on our lives during four centuries of bondage in the Western Hemisphere. We realize that the only people who care enough about us to work consistently for our liberation are are us. Our politics evolve from a healthy love for ourselves, our sisters, and our community, which allows us to continue our struggle and work. This focusing upon our own oppression, there's the narcissistic navel-gazing at the heart of intersectionality, because remember, the point isn't to focus on their own issues and to talk about it, it is to morally extort other groups, first white feminists or feminists more broadly, black liberationists, then eventually basically everybody into doing their work for them. This focusing upon our own oppression, in other words, the beginning of victimhood ideology or victimhood uh, culture, we are greater victims and nobody even cares about us. So we're focusing on ourselves and you better too, or you're not in solidarity with us. And we're going to call you racist or sexist or homophobic or whatever it happens to be. This focusing upon our own oppression is embodied in the concept of identity politics. And there it is. There it is. There's the first mention of identity politics in the uh, context that is now meant today. This focusing upon our own oppression is embodied in the concept of identity politics. We believe that the most profound and potentially most radical politics come directly out of our own identity, as opposed to working to end somebody else's oppression. In the case of black women, 
This is a particularly repugnant, dangerous, threatening, and therefore revolutionary concept because it is obvious from looking at all the political movements that have preceded us that anyone is that anyone is more worthy of liberation than ourselves. We reject pedestals, queenhood, and walking ten paces behind to be recognized as human, lovely human is enough. Well, that would be wonderful if that's what it was really about. But of course, that's not what it's really about because it's the same thing. I mentioned Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter, but the fundamental assumption, why is All Lives Matter not a better statement than Black Lives Matter? Why was it a bannable offense or a moral infraction of the highest order to say All Lives Matter in opposition to Black Lives Matter? Well, they said, well, you're taking the focus off of black. You're taking the focus off of the identity category. So it's blatant that they want to be put on a pedestal. And if they're black women, they want to be put into queenhood. And they definitely don't want to be walking 10 paces behind. That's that much is obvious. Um, But the specific justification given was, in fact, that all lives will matter when black lives matter on the justification that black lives are allegedly at the very bottom of the pedestal or pile faces at the bottom of the well. So their assumption is that you can't possibly lower anybody else. But if you raise up black uh, black lives to the highest level, to equal level is, is what they're saying is because black lives are below equal level, that if you raise them up to equal level, then everybody else will be at equal level too. And so that there's no actual trade-off there. Uh, and they're, they're, there's no zero sum to their obviously zero sum, in fact, negative sum identity politics that they're running. And so this is a core lie and it, it is a very useful thing for them to say because it makes them morally virtually invincible, but it's, it doesn't, it's not reflected in what they actually do. They just complain that nobody's doing their work for them. And so they're racist and sexist. In other words, they're going to morally extort. This is moral racketeering of the first rate. They're going to now morally extort people into doing exactly what they just said that they reject being put on a pedestal, etc. To be recognized as human, levelly human is enough, but their measure of levelly human is that everybody has to focus on them to get them up there because they believe that they're held down below everybody else and that's imposed upon them. And that's in their own words throughout all their writing for the next, this is 77, for the next 50 years almost, 40 years. So pardon me while I roll my eyes a little bit at these statements, but we believe that sexual politics under patriarchy is as pervasive in black women's lives as are the politics of class and race. We also find it difficult to separate race from class, from sex oppression, because in our lives they are almost uh, they are most often experienced simultaneously. Intersectionality again, this is where it comes from. We know that there is such a thing as racial sexual depression, which is neither solely racial nor solely sexual. For example, the history of rape of black women by white men is a weapon of political repression. Although we are feminists and lesbians, key point there, right? Although we are feminists and lesbians, we feel solidarity with progressive black men and do not advocate the fractionalization that white women who are separatists demand. Where our situation as black people necessitates that we have solidarity around the fact of race, which white women, of course, do not need to have with white men, unless it is their negative solidarity as racial oppressors. We struggle together with black men against racism, we, while we also struggle with black men about sexism. So you 
you see intersectionality happening and you see the moral extortion racket against white women. White women actually, you know, they're so privileged that they can be against white men. But we, because we're under this, you know, because we have race issue attached as well, still have to be in solidarity with men and we have to work together. So we have this better form of approach of identity politics and white women are actually terrible and they're racist is the the subtext there. We realize that the, and this is the key sentence, by the way, or paragraph, not sentence. This is a key paragraph, and I don't have to do a whole lot of work after this. Uh, we realize that the liberation of all oppressed peoples, that's liberationism, in other words, neo-Marxism, necessitates the destruction of the political economic systems of capitalism and imperialism, as well as patriarchy. Let's just read that again. We realize that the liberation of all oppressed peoples necessitates the destruction of the political economic systems of capitalism and imperialism, as well as patriarchy. So they're feminists, they're Marxist feminists. Gotcha. We are socialists because we believe that work must be organized for the collective benefit of those who do the work and create the products and not for the profit of the bosses. Material resources must be equally distributed among those who create these resources. We are not convinced, however, that a socialist revolution that is not also a feminist and anti-racist revolution will guarantee our liberation. Now you see the birth of the identity Marxism that I've been trying to talk about. Marcuse called for it 10 years before this, roughly, and here it is. Okay, they are explicitly Marxist. We are socialists because we believe that work must be organized for the collective benefit of those who do the work and create the products. That's not just garden variety socialism that is marxist socialism that's not we're going to have universal health care or some other little uh, we're not going to have fire departments it's not some socialist talking point where we're going to have public services at whatever level that is marxist socialism because work must be organized for the collective benefit of those who do the work and create the product and not for the product profit of the bosses. Material resources must be equally distributed among those who create those resources. That's absolutely Marxist socialism. That is Marxism. So they're that, but it's not good enough because they are going to invent identity Marxism. We are not convinced, however, that a socialist re- uh, that a socialist revolution that is not also a feminist and anti-racist revolution will guarantee our liberation. We have arrived at the necessity for developing an understanding of class relationships that takes into account the specific class position of black women who are generally marginal in the labor force, while at this particular time some of us are temporarily viewed as doubly desirable tokens at white-collar and professional level- levels. We need to articulate the real class situation of persons who are not merely raceless, sexless workers, but for whom the racial and sexual oppression, sorry, but for whom racial and sexual oppression are significant determinants in their working and economic lives. So that's material determinism, by the way. Uh, But now it's being taken into the context of racial and sexual material determinism. So these are race Marxists. They are uh, Marxist feminists. They are Marxist, 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 and they are saying that we now need to fuse identity politics as they've defined it into Marxism. This is identity Marxism happening right here. Although we are in essential agreement, they tell us, with Marx's theory, <laughs> needed, did we need it to be more explicit, by the way? Ha <laughs> ha, you thought I was interpreting. 
Although we are in essential agreement with Marx's theory as it applied to the very specific economic relationships he analyzed, we know that his analysis must be extended further in order for us to understand our specific economic situation as black women, but they don't want to be put on a pedestal. A political contribution which we feel we have already made is the expansion of the feminist principle that the personal is political. Probably the most dangerous and dumb idea in the history of the 20th century, honestly. And there's some big competitors there. Uh, The personal is political. This is how do you create a narcissistic, navel-gazing identity politics religion out of Marxism. That's how. The personal is political. Thanks, feminists. In our consciousness-raising sessions, Marxism, in our consciousness-raising sessions, for example, we have in many ways gone beyond white women's revelations because we are dealing with the implications of race and class as well as sex. Now, I said Marxism there. Consciousness-raising, of course, was a feminist project as well, and the feminist project mirrored the Marxist project to say that there was an upper class and a lower class, in other words, a stratified society, and that the upper class oppresses the lower class, and that a revolution of the society is necessary. And so liberal feminists often ended up you know, thinking that they were just trying to get to a level playing field, but in fact, the goal was always to have some kind of a revolution. And the Marxist feminists actually knew this, and they what did they do? They raised a feminist consciousness. They tried to convince women that they were oppressed and that they needed to overthrow the society and raise a feminist consciousness. But there's a raise a class consciousness, and there's also raise a critical consciousness that have come into to being by this point. Those are all slightly different. Class consciousness is, is Marxist, and uh, um, the critical consciousness is the neo-Marxist idea that the entire society, that you're aware that the entire society is subtly brainwashing you into believing that it's not, that you're not really oppressed. And so, they're trying to dig into that and they're using identity factors as cultural artifacts to do it. And that's the evolution of neo-Marxism into identity Marxism that we have to deal with now today. So anyway, in our consciousness raising sessions, they have to deal with the implications of race and class as well as sex. Even our black women's style of talking, testifying in black language Remember, I was just saying about how they identify races and classes or races and, and cultures as, as, as together. I still think that's super racist. So there's a black women's style of talking and testifying in black language, y'all. A black women's style of talking and testifying in black language about what we have experienced has a resonance that is both cultural and political. We've spent a great deal of energy delving into the cultural and experiential nature of our oppression out of necessity because none of these matters has ever been looked at before. Sound familiar with the stuff we're dealing with today? Yeah, I think so. Lived experience, um, experiential nature of our oppression. This is going to be a justification for what was standpoint epistemology through the 80s and became intersectional positional uh, or positionality thinking in the kind of present paradigm starting from the 90s going forward uh, and doing so in black women's style of talking and testifying in black language about what we have experienced. That is both cultural and political resonance, they tell us. Um, no one has ever, uh, no one before has ever examined the multi-layered texture of black women's lives. An example of this kind of revelation conceptualization occurred at a meeting as we discussed the ways in which our early intellectual interests had been attacked by our peers, particularly black males. 
Turns out, by the way, black males have not particularly been keen on feminism for a very long time. But anyway, we discovered that all of us, because we were, quote, smart, had also been considered, quote, ugly. <laughs> Tell us how you look without telling us how you look, right? I.e., quote, smart, ugly. Quote, smart, ugly crystallized the way in which most of us had been forced to develop our intellects at great cost to our, quote, social lives. The sanctions in the black and white communities against black women thinkers is comparatively much higher than for white women, particularly ones from the educated middle and upper classes. As we have already stated, the, we reject the stance of lesbian separatism because it is not a viable political analysis or strategy for us. It leaves out far too much and far too many people, particularly black men, women, and children. We have a great deal of credit. By the way, they don't want to be put on a pedestal, but that's we're not going to do anything but focus on race all the way through. And if you don't also focus on race, you're a terrible person. Actually, you're a racist and you're probably supporting white supremacy, but they don't want to be put on a pedestal. We have a great deal of criticism and loathing for what men have been socialized to be in this society, what they support, how they act, and how they oppress, but we do not have the misguided notion that it is their maleness per se, that is their biological maleness, that makes them what they are. Oh, how the queer theorists would have a field day with this today, right? As black women, we find any type of biological determinism a particularly dangerous and reactionary basis upon which to build a politic. We must also question whether lesbian separatism is an adequate and progressive political analysis and strategy, even for those who practice it, since it so completely denies any but the sexual sources of women's oppression, negating the facts of race and class. Oh, sorry, class and race. I put them in the wrong order. Uh, so... I agree with them about le lesbian separatism. I think it's a terrible idea, but nevertheless. Three, problems in organizing black feminists. I bet this is going to be a hoot. Just saying. During our years together as a black feminist collective, we have experienced success and defeat, joy and pain, victory and failure. We have found that it is very difficult to organize around black feminist issues, difficult even to announce in certain contexts that we are black feminists. We have tried to think about the reasons for our difficulties, particularly since the white women, maybe it's the identity politics and people don't like it. Uh, maybe people want to be, you know, they don't want to alienate everybody else around them all the time based on issues like race and sex. Maybe, maybe, any, sorry. Um, we tried to think about the reasons for our difficulties, particularly since the white women's movement continues to be strong and to grow in many directions. Really, a bigger tent movement is strong, and a smaller tent movement is fractionizing and weak. Whatever. Uh, in this section, we will discuss some of the general reasons for the organizing problems we face, and also talk specifically about the stages in, our, in organizing our own collective. The major source of difficulty in our political work is that we are not just trying to fight oppression on one front or even two, but instead to address a whole range of oppressions. We do not have racial, sexual, heterosexual, or class privilege to rely upon, nor do we have even the minimal access to resources and power that groups who possess any one of these types of, of, of privilege have. So here you see the invocation. This is in the 70s. This isn't Peggy McIntosh in 1988 or 9 or whatever with the unpacking the knapsack. Privilege is already being invoked very clearly. They don't have racial, sexual, heterosexual, or class privilege to rely upon. Privilege is the uh, extension of having access to bourgeois society. 
uh, to being in the upper level of society. So they say we have none of those things, nor do we even have minimal access to resources and power that groups who do have privileges of these kinds have. So if they were straight women instead of lesbians, if they were white instead of black, if they were male instead of female, or if they were rich instead of poor, they might have access to privilege and they could have a more successful movement, but they don't have that. And obviously because they want to be <laughs> black, lesbian, feminist, socialists, Marxists or whatever, they activists, they seriously are alienating everybody else from them. So what they're trying to do now is create a politic that's going to twist everybody else to do their work for them and to join in with them as and what they're going to invoke to do it is that they're in the most oppressed status and anybody who cares about oppression must care about them most without, of course, putting them on a pedestal. The psychological toll, all of this psychological trauma-based language that we've heard for this, remember, this is 1977, really comes down to the we're tired psychological toll of whatever. So this whole like psychological victimhood mentality is art is a 77 already being birthed here very, very clearly as going to be the mechanism by which you have to recognize their oppression. We under, we, we experience tremendous psychological pain and toil. We, we, it takes a toll on us. It wears us down. We're multiply oppressed. You don't even understand how bad it is for us. You have to be in solidarity with us. That's going to be the moral extortion racket that they're going to create. It is victimhood culture times victimhood culture times victimhood culture times victimhood culture to the power of however many identity factors they can bring in to the uh, to to bear on the thing, and so it's going to extort people who, in the kind of left liberal mindset, are too caring, too compassionate, and it's therefore going to use psychological language also to do a more moral racketeering routine on on compassionate people but also particularly left liberals and leftists who are then going to be co-opted into doing their work uh, primarily for them. So psychological toll of being a black woman and the difficulties this presents in reaching political consciousness and doing political work can never be underestimated. So political consciousness, this is actually backwards of theory because this is just whining is what this is because political consciousness should actually be easier to achieve when you have more oppression because it should be easier to see your oppression. But what they're saying is that it's not because there's too many forces arrayed against you. So this is just nonsense whining. And it can never be underestimated. There is a very low value placed upon black women's psyches in this society, which is both racist and sexist. So they're going to go and call everybody racist and sexist who doesn't take up their side. Moral racketeering. As an early group member once said, quote, we are all damaged people merely by virtue of being black women. So you're going to hear this language of trauma getting brought into it. The harm, the language of harm, the language of trauma, the language of victimhood is going to be at the center of this moral extortion racket to get everybody into their meaningful politics of identity that they're defining that is going to be intersectional. We are dispossessed psychologically and on every other level. And yet we feel the necessity to struggle to change the condition of all black women. In other words, they're not on a pedestal or a queendom, but it's certainly that they're suffering martyred heroes. But here we are. In a black feminist search for scissorhood, Michelle Wallace arrives at this conclusion. And I assume this whole thing is a quote, but it's not in quotes. We exist as women who are black, who are feminists, each stranded for the movement working independently because there is not yet an environment in this society remotely congenial to our struggle because being on the bottom we would have to do what no one else has done we would have to fight the world i assume end quote there 
Faces at the bottom of the well, being on the bottom. Hmm. Wallace is pessimistic but realistic in her assessment of black feminists' position. Let me just remind everybody before we carry on here, because you think you might be thinking, well, they really have a point. No. This is a typical wound-collecting trick that you see from a lot of activists of this kind of leftist victimhood-oriented stripe. They're annoying. Lesbian activists, black activists, feminist activists, Marxist activists, they're annoying. They annoy everybody. Their whole thing is to alienate, to whine, to bitch and complain, and to blame somebody else for all their problems. And then what happens when people actually shun them for being negative Nancy, external locus of control, uh, dour, joy-eating, joy-destroying, um, pains in the asses, they think it's because, oh, it's just because we're black women or lesbians. No, it's not. It's because you're fucking annoying. And you fucking annoy people, and then when people shun you, you collect the wound and say it's actually a factor of identity. This is a totally common, it's in fact not even a common, it is a workhorse technique. Wound collecting. They go out and they agitate and bother people. They use their annoying analysis, which people somehow, you know, typically perceive has something wrong with it. And they understand that there's a moral extortion racket going on here and that it's unjust and it's unfair and it's inaccurate. And then when people say, no, I don't think so. And I'm not going to participate in that. I'm not going to lend to your super annoying form of activism. They say, oh, it's because we're black women, isn't it? It's because we're black lesbians, isn't it? It's because we're, you know, poor black lesbians, isn't it? This is a game called wound collecting. And it's super common. It is, in fact, the workhorse of this moral extortion racket that is the heart of intersectionality. So when they say positionality must be continuously engaged, the intersectionalists do today, they say that that means you have to acknowledge who you are so that what you know and don't know can be understood in terms of oppression, etc. But what it really means is you have to be able to acknowledge that you're participating in this moral extortion racket in exactly this way. That's what's really going on here. Wallace is pessimistic but realistic, in other words, wound collecting, in her assessment of black feminist position. Notice it's not, well, even when they do invoke black women, it's just like black feminists. Feminists. Feminists drive people fucking nuts. You add in, it's like I used to joke before I kind of got involved all in, in all this and realized just how deep all this was in the church. I was terrified that wokeness was going to get into Christianity because I used to say, could you imagine anything more annoying than a woke Christian? It's like, you have evangelists who are already annoying as hell. Like I need to, I was just thinking of like a street preacher who's now street preaching woke stuff with Jesus behind it. And it's like, that's the most annoying thing I could possibly think of in the entire world. And then they imagine that person saying, well, you just don't like me because I advocate for racial justice and you're, I'm a Christian and Christians have always been persecuted. It's wound collecting. It's just annoying. No, you're actually just pissing people off with your stupid crap and nobody wants to listen to it. And it has nothing to do with you. It has to do with the crap, the fact that you're repeating stupid crap that nobody wants to listen to. So conflating politics and identity that personal is political leads somebody to be able to make this confusion and then to convince people that this confusion is being that this confusion is not confusion and it is a extortion racket that they're pulling off here but let's just back up and reread that wallace is pessimistic but realistic in her assessment of black feminist position particularly in her allusion to the nearly classic isolation most of us face yeah you're gonna be isolated because nobody wants to talk to your annoying pain in the asses what are you doing? You're going around telling the lesbian separatists they're wrong. They don't want to talk to you. You're going around telling the white women that they're white feminists that they're wrong. They don't want to talk to you. You're telling the black liberation guys that they're sexist. They don't want to talk to you. You're telling normal liberals that we need Marxism. They don't want to talk to 
you? Why do you think you're isolated? Oh, you think you're isolated because you because you think it's about being a black lesbian feminist or what a black lesbian woman or what it's not. It's because you're fucking annoying. Really fucking annoying. The classic isolation. Maybe adopt a politics that's actually based on reality instead of alienating everybody all the time and you won't be alone all the time. But you can't do that because I'd be blaming the victim, wouldn't it? Perfectly self-sealed victimhood crybaby ideology, wound collecting ideology. And like I said, it just the only thing you can under, you can do is understand that intersectionality in this regard re- amounts to a moral extortion racket. In fact, moral racketeering along these various axes of racist, sexist, homophobic, et cetera, et cetera. We might use our position at the bottom, however, to make a clear leap into revolutionary action. Marxists. We might use our position at the bottom, however, to make a clear leap into revolutionary action. If black women were free, it would mean that everyone else would have to be free. Didn't I just say that? Didn't I just say that that's the stupid, incorrect uh, assumption? It, it is a, it is a, what is it? Soundness or validity, one or the other. Soundness of argument, false. False. The, the, the premises of this argument just don't follow. If black women were free, P.S. is 1977, they are. If black women were free, it would mean that everyone else would have to be free since our freedom would necessitate the destruction of all the systems of oppression. Oh, you mean it would require race communism and identity communism? Gotcha. So that is the fundamental logical failure at the bottom of black feminism that causes them to engage in this moral extortion racket called intersectionality. And it is just the same thing we just dealt with again if we don't say all, we can't say all lives matter. We can't even say that's a higher and more valuable truth than black lives matter because when black lives matter, all lives will matter automatically because obviously they are at the bottom. They are the faces at the bottom of the well. And so everyone else would have to matter because their lives mattering would necessitate the destruction of all systems of their lives not mattering or of oppression. It's the exact same garbage logic that they use with all lives matter being bad versus black lives matter being good, which means don't put them on a pedestal except do always because it's a moral extortion racket. Feminism is nevertheless very threatening to the majority of black people because it calls into, so here's where they're now going to go into feminism itself and they're going to twist the thumb screws on feminists to get them to put black feminism on a pedestal, but not on a pedestal because they said it's not to put them on a pedestal, but Obviously, that's what the moral extortion racket is. So now, this is the key thing that intersectionality does, is it takes that moral extortion racket, racist, sexist, etc., that's always in these identity Marxist categories, and it turns each of the different movements, this is so important to understand, it turns, turns feminism inward on itself using race and turns it into a hot mess. It turns black liberationism in on itself by using sex and turns it into a hot mess. It turns everything in on itself using homosexuality and turns it into a mess. And they create that that divide and conquer polarization dynamic again and again everywhere they go and extort what's left of the movement which is dying and of, of its own internal contradictions and, and fighting now around that polarization they turn what's left of the movement to their own purposes and claim that every other part of it is chauvinistic and bad and the wrong side and well yeah you could be a part of the black liberation movement but it's actually sexist unless you're a black feminist first. This is the, this, this is the maneuver. This is the maneuver that they do again and again and again. 
And so here it is, feminism is nevertheless very threatening to the majority of black people because it calls into question some of the most basic assumptions about our existence. That is that sex should be a determinant of power relationships. Here's the way that male and female roles were defined in a black nationalist pamphlet from the early 1970s. Uh, This is, I assume, a very long quote because there's a number at the end of it like previously. We understand that it is and has been traditional that the man is the head of the house. He is the leader of the house. So this is the Black Nationalist pamphlet. This is this is them. I had it backwards. They're not accusing feminists of being white. They're accusing black nationalists and black liberationists of being sexist because they're saying feminism is a threat to that project. So they're going to try to extort them using feminism and say that they're sexist. So they need to take up feminism. So they'll stop being feminist or sexist. And by stopping being sexist, they will, they can, they can do that by becoming a black feminist. They can join their stricter ideology. This is exactly the same little Marxist trick being done in microcosm that you see at the end or in that paragraph in critical race theory and introduction by Delgado and Stefanczyk, where they say, you know, the movement progressed through these big things and it got into these smaller issues. And so the dialectic progresses grinding inward. Okay, so the quote again from the Black Nationalist pamphlet from the early 1970s, we understand that it is and has been traditional that the man is the head of the house. He is the leader of the house nation because his knowledge of the world is broader, his awareness greater, his understanding is fuller, and his application of this information is wiser. After all, there's a dot, dot, dot there, so they've left something out, and I don't have it in front of me to know what. After all, it is only reasonable that the man be the head of the house because he is able to defend and protect the development of his home. Ellipsis again, something left out. Women cannot do the same things as men. They are made by nature to function differently. Equality of men and women is something that cannot happen even in the abstract world. We would recognize this as being fairly based here in 2021, wouldn't we? Men are not equal to other men. That is ability, experience, or even understanding. The value of men and women can be seen as the value of gold and silver. They are not equal, but they both have great value. We must under we must realize that men and women are a complement to each other because there is no house family without a man and his wife. Both are essential to the development of any life. End quote. Now they're going to tear that apart. Now I'm not going to necessarily say that that doesn't have grains of sexism that we maybe should consider uh, a little bit concerning, um, but nevertheless, they're going to tear that apart. And why are they making that argument? Because At the very end, we must realize that men and women are a complement to each other because there is no house and family without a man and his wife. Both are essential to the development of any life. Pause. If you look at any of the data-driven analysis in the entire world right now, any of it, any of it, what does it all say is the number one determining variable in terms of material outcomes, educational attainment, employment attainment, criminality, etc. It is whether or not there is a stable two-family household at home in a decent neighborhood. Two fa- two parents in the home. I forgot what the the actual number is, but it's in the it's above seventy five percent. I think I think it's seventy six percent, but it might be seventy two or three. It's somewhere in the seventies, though. I know it's in the seventy percent range, seventy to eighty percent range of. Black children in the United States right now are born in a household that doesn't have a father present. Here we have black nationalists saying, we must realize that men and women are a complement to each other in the early 1970s because there is no house or family without a man and his wife. Both are essential to the development of any life. That turns out to be perfectly true and correct, despite whatever some of the other statements happen to have been, whatever you want to think of them. That part is correct 
and key. And what we see now is the absolute destruction of that to the absolute decimation of successful black outcomes. And who did it? Well, the Combahee River Collective, the black feminists, the black feminists, just like the feminists in so many other places, stepped in threw a wrecking ball into this extremely key fundamental statement to the structure of building a functional society, a functional community, and that all the stuff before it, different, whatever, blah, 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 set it aside. We must realize that men and women are complement to one another are a complement to one another because there is no house slash family without a man and his wife. Both are essential to the development of any life. The black feminists highlighted that in this short statement as a key thing that they have a massive problem with. These black lesbians have a huge problem with this, who are feminists. Hmm. Hmm. So you can see the seeds of destruction for the black community that they then, here we are, what, 40 years later, 44 years later, they milk those differences in outcomes. They say, look at black attainment, look at black, the the levels of black uh, educational attainment, look at the black levels of employment, look at the black levels of criminality, look at the black levels of incarceration, look at all of the black drug use, black murder rate, black this, all these huge, huge, ugly problems. And they were the ones, the same, the, the intellectual inheritors of this steaming pile of intersectional garbage are the ones making the exact argument that their forebears destroyed the idea that we should have a stable home in which we must realize, to quote the black nationalists again, that men and women, this is from the 1970s, this isn't some weird outdated thing, we must realize that men and women are a complement to each other because there is no house or family without a man and his wife because both are essential to the development of any life. That's the thing they actually wanted to undermine. And why? Well, they're Marxists, so they have to destroy the family. Gramsci said, religion, education, media, family, and law. Those are the five pillars that have to be obliterated, family. And they want to use their feminism to upset this core. They're saying that this belief within black nationalism or black liberation is a sexist problem that needs to be problematized. So the black liberation movement, which for all of its issues, all of its already bad problems that I would disagree with, for all of its black nationalist is even worse than just black liberation, uh, for all the problems contained within all of that. And by the way, (laughs) nationalist and liberationist they're always both kind of socialist and working in concert with one another, but the the liberationist ones are always worse. Um, you saw the exact same parallel with the Guomintang in China. The Chinese National Party was a socialist party, blah, blah, blah. And then the CCP uh, intercepted and subverted it from within by accusing it of uh, being a Han supremacist and trying to force Han Chinese-ness on everybody, uh, making one Chinese race that was actually just going to be Han and everybody else was going to be obliterated because that's the way that nationalism was going to demand a Chinese identity. They always do this. The nationalists are always, uh, the the, the liberationists are always like the the Marxists who come in and colonize the socialist nationalist parties. Um, We have this core belief here that in the early 1970s from a black nationalist pamphlet that we, the, the black, black success depends upon remembering that there is going to be a stable family unit of man, wife, and children. 
which turns out to be the number one determining variable for black success. In other words, they, regardless of whatever other crazy stuff they might have said or believed, even with regard to this particular issue or their justifications for that claim, that particular claim was 100% exactly correct. And the black feminists were the one who came in and threw a, threw, like you can imagine it like bowling pins and they just flung a bowling ball at like light speed through the thing and blew up all the pins. And then here we are 40 years later with this utter destruction or decimation of uh, black family life and of black attainment that they then milk to say we have systemic racism. Who created it? Bitches, you did. And then why are you so isolated? Why does nobody like you? Why are the black, why do the black real liberation and nationalist movements exclude you? Because you're trying to break up families because you're nasty feminist Marxists. Anyway, back to them, back to the statement. The material conditions of most black women would hardly lead them to upset both economic and sexual arrangements that seem to represent some stability in their life. Many black women have a good understanding of both sexism and racism, but because of the everyday constrictions of their lives cannot risk struggling against them both. So now they're saying that most black women accept this patriarchal oppression because... They want that stability in their life. Remember when we went through Marcuse and I said that the point of his whole analysis was that the uh, economic situation of the working class can be improved and they can be stabilized. So destabilization is key to his revolutionary political agenda. Here they're saying, well, black women are forced to accept some patriarchy so they can have stability and what their agenda is as the black feminist marxists that they are is to create instability instead to say that they need to agitate to become committed to a movement that's going to lead into instability and this is what marxists always do it's how do you create instability then use that instability to create a revolutionary movement by outsourcing the blame onto the society itself instead of the people actually causing it this is again just to be clear since we're talking about criminality right now too it's decimating black communities in the wake of black lives matter which turned out not to be that great for black lives overall um, this is why you're seeing the, the bail reform. This is why you're seeing the release of criminals. This is why you're seeing the, uh, decimation of, um, prosecuting crime, like shoplifting and theft, etc. Uh, all of this huge rise in criminality is all a Marxist strategy. It's all a Marxist plot. It's all tied into exactly here to where if you destabilize a community, People will be willing, you'll be more likely to be able to, to pull off a revolution. This has been Marxist strategy 101 since like 1900, like way back when. And this is exactly the same thing in yet another domain that they've actually, because it was more insidious and more quiet, they were actually very successful at pulling off. Now, when you tie this into the fact that many of the programs of the great society were the things that incentivized single motherhood, for example welfare for as it was construed uh, specifically targeting primarily not necessarily intentionally racially but sometimes targeting uh, black inner city families uh, to, to incentivize uh, the most of what critical race theory evolved to do was to defend and to reinvigorate and increase those those uh, great society entitlements 
that were instituted by President Johnson and amplify them, whereas they were starting to get walked back through the 1970s. And critical race theory grew out of Malou saying, no, we need to amplify those entitlements. But those entitlements were the destruction of the very people that they were trying to help. And those broken lives and broken circumstances and broken neighborhoods become the justification that we live in a systemically racist society. So you can see they're creating their own problem and then using the problem to justify their continued action. And you see this written right into this collective statement that is the foundation of intersectionality. So you can damn well bet that intersectionality is a program of creating problems that it's later going to milk over and over and over again to drive for more intersectionality. This is the standard communist trick. Intersectionality is a gigantic communist ploy that operates off of a gigantic moral extortion racket to enable a rampant and out of control victimhood culture that concentrates uh, through this extorted distorted view of psychological and psychic uh, and, and psychic harm and trauma that they attach to systemic oppression which is an explicitly neo-marxist idea that's what intersectionality is really about but back to the wound collecting if we will the reaction of black men to feminism has been notoriously negative yeah no shit because they know that it's going to destroy that family structure that they knew was their only way out of the oppression coming out of the segregation they need stable families they need strong men in the home etc to raise up a generation of winners who are going to go make successes of their lives and feminism black feminism in particular was going to absolutely wreck that in their communities and the black men coming out of this problem maybe because because they were aware of the oppression, damn well knew it. And so the reaction of black men to feminism has been notoriously negative. They knew it was poison for their already uh, fragile communities. They are, of course, they say, they say, even more threatened than black women by the possibility that black feminists might organize around her own needs. They realize that they might not only lose valuable and hardworking allies in their struggles, but that they might also be forced to change their habitually sexist ways of interacting with and oppressing black women. Accusations that black feminism divides the black struggle are powerful deterrents to the growth of an autonomous black women's movement. And so you see intersectionality is a catastrophe. And the people who were fight, who were dealing with its emergence knew it was, even with their own racial identity politics being its own problem. Still, they tell us, hundreds of women have been active at different times during the three-year existence of our group. And every black woman who came, came out of a strongly felt need for some level of possibility that did not previously exist in her life. When we first started meeting in 1974, after the first NBFO first Sorry, after the NBFO First Eastern Regional Conference, we did not have a strategy for organizing or even a focus. We just wanted to see what we had. After a period of months of not meeting, we began to meet again late in the year and started doing an intense variety of consciousness raising. Yeah. The overwhelming feeling that we had is that after years and years, we had finally found each other. Although we were not the founding of a cult or anything, although we were not doing political work as a group, individuals continued their involvement in lesbian politics, sterilization abuse, and abortion rights work. The third, third World Women's International Women's Day activities in support activities for the trials of Dr. Kenneth Edelin, Joan Little, and Inez Garcia. I'm sure these are interesting trials. But I'm not familiar with any of those things. It's an interesting list, though, right? The continued involvement in lesbian politics, sterilization, abuse, and abortion rights work. Uh, third World Women's International Women's Day activities and support activity for these trials. Dr. Kenneth Edelin, Joan Little, and Inez Garcia. During our first summer when membership had dropped off considerably, 
Those of us remaining devoted serious discussion to the possibility of opening a refuge for battered women in a black community. There was no refuge in Boston at that time. We also decided around that time to become an independent collective since we had serious disagreements with NBFO's bourgeois feminist stance and their lack of a clear political focus. So they're accusing their, um, I don't remember what NBFO stands for, uh, National Black Feminist Organization or something like that. I don't want to lose my place here to go back and look for it, but I think I did. So they're accusing that of being bourgeois feminist, typical Marxist concentration of of commitment to a uh, subgroup, typical divide and conquer. We keep talking about this. this is what intersectionality exists to do. We were also contacted at that time by socialist feminists with whom we had worked on abortion rights activities who wanted to encourage us to attend the National Socialist Feminist Conference in Yellow Springs. One of our members did attend, and despite the narrowness of the ideology that was promoted at that particular conference, we became more aware of the need for us to understand our own economic situation and to make our own economic analysis. So they became Marxist more intensely in the fall. When some members returned, we experienced several months of comparative inactivity and internal disagreements, which were first conceptualized as a lesbian straight split, but which were also the result of class and political differences. I'm sure that that was a fun time to be there. And there, this is the the turn. This is the dividing and conquering internaling of them. So they come out ideologically consistent as this uh, identity Marxism is what's going to emerge as we're reading about. During the summer, those of us who were still meeting had determined the need to do political work and to move beyond consciousness raising and serving exclusively as an emotional support group. So theory and praxis are going to have to be wedded. They're becoming Marxist. At the beginning of 1976, when some of the women who, did, who had not wanted to do political work and who had also voiced disagreements stopped attending of their own accord, we again looked for a focus. We decided at that time with the addition of new members to become a study group. We had always shared our readings with each other, and some of us had written papers on black feminism for group discussion a few months before this decision was made. We began functioning as a study group and also began discussing the possibility of starting a black feminist publication. We had a retreat in the late spring, which provided t uh, a time for both political discussion and working out interpersonal issues. <laughs> Jeez, I bet this was just so fun to be a part of. Currently, we are planning to gather together a collection of black feminist writing. We believe that it is absolutely essential to demonstrate the reality of our politics to other black women and believe that we can do this through writing and distributing our work. The fact that individual black feminists are living in isolation all over the country, that our own numbers are small, and that we have some skills in writing, printing, and publishing makes us want to carry out these kinds of projects as a means of organizing black feminists as we continue to do political work in coalition with other groups. I can't believe they actually included that paragraph. Those last two paragraphs or three or whatever, just like, good Lord. But there's their nasty history or their, their turbulent history, 1974 through 1977, when they were ready to issue this statement. Mm. Section four, black feminist issues and projects. During our time together, we have identified and worked on many issues of particular relevance to black women. The inclusiveness of our politics makes us concerned with any situation that impinges upon the lives of women, third world and working people. Does that sound like Herbert Marcuse? It is. We're, of course, particularly committed to working on those struggles in which race, sex, and class are simultaneous factors in oppression. We might for intersectionality, in other words, which is Marxist, by the way. 
We might, for example, become involved in workplace organizing at a factory that employs third world women or pick at a hospital that is cutting back on already inadequate health care to a third world community or set up a rape crisis center in a black neighborhood. Organizing around welfare and daycare concerns might also be a focus. There's obviously a lot of uh, working their way into very legitimate causes. This is always a thing that's happening and not always for bad reasons. Um, the work to be done, the thing is, is they do a lot of things that are necessary, good projects for reasons that are the correct reasons. And then when they do, they get in them and bring their shit ideology inside. Uh, and then that turns into a disaster and concentrates the thing. So there's this, uh, I think, unintentional entryism that takes place as well, because they, they want to help. They see real problems. They get involved. I think that's all legitimate. And then they get inside. And then when they get inside, because they're moral zealots with their ideology, they start twisting everything to conform to their their beliefs. This is the renormalization process in an organic fashion. And then what you end up doing is start making total messes out of these communities because their ideology is garbage. And so there are lots of well-meaning people involved in lots of these projects and lots of places that are still uh, creating catastrophes as a result of what they do. Back to what we were doing. The work to be, uh, the work to be done and the countless issues that this work represents merely reflect the pervasiveness of our oppression. So this is where I was just saying that their ideology, everything is going to come back to pervasiveness of oppression, blah, blah, blah. And they're going to go into whatever they go into and start teaching people to think that way, which they're going to call consciousness raising, which is actually whether if they're not aware of what they're doing and doing it intentionally makes them useful idiots for the Marxist movement in, in, in a broader sense. Issues and projects that collective members have actually worked on are sterilization, abuse, abortion rights, battered women, rape, and health care. We've also done many workshops and educationals on black feminism on college campuses, at women's conferences, and most recently for high school women. So that is actually just going and spreading the uh, ideological word. One issue that is major, of major concern to us and that we have begun to publicly address is racism in the white women's movement. Uh, we talked about that a moment ago when I had it backwards on what we were going to be discussing. As black feminists, we are made constantly and painfully aware of how little effort white women have made to understand and combat their racism. Sound like Robin D'Angelo? <laughs> Which requires, among other things, that they have more that they have a more than superficial comprehension of race, color, and black history and culture. Eliminating racism in the white women's movement is, by definition, work for white women to do. But we will continue to speak and to demand accountability on this issue. But don't put them on pedestals, of course. No queendom over here, right? So you can see that this is exactly what I was saying, though, that you white women need to go do the work. They need to develop a, a racial consciousness. And they have to, it's not anybody else's job to do. They have to do it. But we're going to demand accountability. Listen to how much stuff here, this is 1977, is just exactly what we hear Today, as black, I'm just going to reread that part, you know, as black feminists, we are made constantly and painfully aware of how little effort white women have made to understand and combat their racism, which requires, among other things, that they have a more than superficial comprehension of race, color, and black history and culture. They have to go do the work. It's not their job to educate you. Eliminating racism in the white women's movement is by definition work for white women. The work. Do the work. It's not our job to educate you. For white women to do, but we will continue to speak and demand accountability on this issue. So they're going to twist. Black feminism is going to come out and twist the moral thumbscrews on white feminism, and we just heard about black liberationism or black nationalism. They're going to twist both of those things 
that they feel that they're at the margins of, twist both those things to centering them. We're going to center black women's issues. We're going to center uh, race and intersections of sex and class and homosexuality. We're going to center our issue because it's more oppression. And look how much psychological trauma we face from it and the harm. And you're sexist, so you have to change. And you're racist, so you have to change. And everybody's homophobic, so they have to change. This is all moral racketeering by a group that figured out kind of they cracked the code to doing a gigantic moral extortion racket on left wing movements to get them to bend the knee and become intersectionalists. This is, that's, that's what intersectionality does. That's why it's an idea that's changed the world. But you just have to realize that this is a gigantic identity. Intersectionality is identity Marxism. This is its birthplace. We just got a little bit left. In the practice of our politics, remember what we talked about at the beginning with practice from the Marxists, in the practice of our politics, we do not believe that the end always justifies the means. Many reactionary and destructive acts have been done in the name of achieving, quote, correct political goals. Yeah, like by Angela Davis, who you already quoted here, right? Like when she kidnapped a federal judge with a shotgun, right? Like that. As feminists, we do not want to mess over people in the name of politics. Really says that. We do not want to mess over people in the name of politics. We believe in collective process and a non-hierarchical distribution of power within our own group and in our vision of a revolutionary society. We are committed to a continual examination of our politics as they develop through criticism and self-criticism as an essential aspect of our practice. In her introduction to Sisterhood is Powerful, Robin Morgan writes, quote, I haven't the faintest notion what a possible what possible revolutionary role white heterosexual men could fulfill since they are the very embodiment of reactionary vested interest power end quote <laughs> that's how they want to end this. this is the second to last sentence of their whole whole thing they're going to quote sisterhood is powerful where robin morgan writes i haven't the faintest notion what possible revolutionary role white heterosexual men could fulfill since they are the very embodiment of reactionary vested interest power healthy mindset here that's the end of that quote and so their last sentence is as black feminists and lesbians there's their positional engagement right we know that we have a very definite revolutionary task to perform and we are ready for the lifetime of work and struggle before us So this is the Combahee River Collective statement from 1977. This is really where intersectionality was born. You can hear that very clearly. This is also where you make it made very clear that this black feminism, which was black Marxist lesbians doing it, that this black feminism, not only is it the birth of intersectionality, but it is the bridge concept between Herbert Marcuse's call for this new working class, new proletariat in identity politics that I said is the birth of identity Marxism and the woke mess that we have today under intersectionality. So this is proto-intersectionality. In 1989, 12 years later after this was written, Kimberly Crenshaw names intersectionality and critical race theory. In 1991, she explains it in terms of mapping the margins, which is in very, in a very real sense, a rehashing of a lot of this statement. Uh, Actually, both of those papers in many significant ways are rehashings and applications of this statement, which um, says something about Kimberly Crenshaw. 
but nevertheless. And then what I contend happened is that through the ensuing, so feminism up to 1977 was certainly not very post-structural. In other words, it hadn't incorporated postmodernism. What marks this as different, so this is identity Marxism. This is the, you just heard the expression of identity Marxism, where I've done the podcast on the rise of identity Marxism, and I talked about up through Marcusa and then jumping forward to Crenshaw, et cetera. This is the, the if we will, mi- missing link between them. This is By this point, identity Marxism has been formulated, it has been birthed in this statement. This is the statement of so-called black feminist thought that is going to give rise to woke within about a decade later. And woke is where it's now incorporated. That's what the point of mapping the margins is. Remember, she talks about the social constructivism in in uh, postmodernism is vulgar constructionism because it doesn't understand the racial category or whatever these power dynamics, these neo-Marxist power dynamics or critical Marxist power dynamics or identity Marxist power dynamics. They don't, postmodern analysis doesn't accept those because it comes from our position, a position of white, you know, white male privilege. So it's not paying attention to those. So it doesn't understand that those are imposed upon people in the subordinated categories, according to that analysis. And so their social constructivism and postmodern is too vulgar, but otherwise postmodernism, which feminism has through the eighties going into the late eighties and early nineties, very heavily adopted. It kind of hits its peak in the mid-90s, the post-structural and post-modern ideas working their way into the academy and especially into feminism. Kimberly Grinshaw in 91 is saying we need to incorporate postmodernism. Bell Hooks has been saying the same stuff by this point. Black feminist Bell Hooks has been saying the same stuff by this point. We need to incorporate postmodernism, but we must do so in this way that accepts identity Marxism first. And so what we see there is a turn from 1977 Combahee River Collective, which I just read, identity Marxism, to woke, which is cultural identity Marxism, which is exactly the same in a sense as the cultural Marxism turn out of old Marxism now taking up cultural issues by seeing black women, for example, as having a black women culture, which is nodded to here by having black women language, remember, and black women issues expressed in black women language. Uh, Seeing these identity categories themselves as cultures to be understood in a culturally relativistic postmodern way in relationship to one another, having their own knowledges, their own epistemic standing that can't be understood from without. And so a cultural and the, 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 the targets then become less a politics of material, which you hear a lot of here. The class is very prominent. Material conditions are very prominent and mentioned repeatedly. By the time we have this cultural turn with Crenshaw going forward, it's all cultural racism, cultural this, cultural that, politics of recognition, as um, Charles Mills calls it later uh, in, in, say, From Class to Race, that there's a shift from the politics of redistribution, which is material redistribution, to the politics of recognition, which is actually the politics of redistributing privilege instead of redistributing materials. Or So we're shifting from... Uh, from from socialism to equity, and that's wokeness, cultural identity Marxism. So what we have is cult- we have c- cultural Marxism giving rise to neo Marxism, or aka critical Marxism, aka critical theory. That's in cultural Marxism arises in the twenties. By the mid thirties, we're having critical theory or critical Marxism. By the late by the mid sixties, critical Marxism is real is hitting a pinnacle and realizing that it has to take a turn into identity politics. Identity politics are working their way in by nineteen seventy seven with this statement. We have a definitive, clear, unambiguous identity Marxism has been born in the form of proto intersectionality in the Combe River Collective statement. By nineteen eighty nine and nineteen ninety one, this becomes. 1993, I think that's when Patricia Hill Hill Collins' book Intersectionality was published. This 
you know, 1990 plus or minus five year span, we all of a sudden have um, a full shift into intersectionality, full identity Marxism is taking its own cultural turn by incorporating post-structuralism uh, and post-modern thought to evolve into now what we would call woke, which is cultural identity Marxism. Welcome to a thoroughgoing explanation of where we are, where it came from, and understanding exactly how the intersectional model is the so-called new sensibility, or the, the half of the part of the new sensibility, which is more broadly sustainability. It is the social aspect of sustainability, the other parts being environmental and best practices and governance, ESG, environmental, social, and governance. The social component of that is intersectionality. Sustainability creates environmental, social, governance parameters, ESG. Uh, those are your sustainability metrics or your sustainability dimensions. And the social component of ESG is that sensibility is um, going to be uh, intersectionality. Intersectionality is identity Marxism. And so now you understand what's really happening here. The Combahee River Collective statement from 1977 really fills in that missing gap and the history of the evolution of Marxism from 19, let's say 17, but really we, I guess we could go back to 1848 to 2021 is now more or less told. This is the missing piece that needed to be articulated. The true birthplace of full-blown, full-fledged, undeniable identity Marxism. And remember, if you think that I ex exaggerate that it was Marxist, just remember that one sentence here from the early part of the second section. Although we are in essential agreement with Marxist theory as it applied to the very spe specific economic relationships he analyzed, we know that his analysis must extend further in order for us to understand our specific economic situation as black women. So it's still very materialist, hasn't shifted into the postmodern politics of recognition and images and hyperreality and so on. But that's what we actually see happening. This is explicitly Marxist. What do you say? Straight up, we are socialists because we think that we need to redistribute the products of work. But they're also saying that these identity politics, identity cultural politics issues have to be incorporated as well. So now we see the picture. I hope this has been elucidating and helped you understand. I know it's long, but it's very important to understand how we got here and what's going on with the movement. You can now, if you've listened to this and kind of understood it, say with utter confidence, intersectionality is identity Marxism, period. Critical race theory is the race component of that. So it is therefore race Marxism, period. You can actually say these things with utter confidence. The Maps have been drawn, the story has been told, it has been explained, and this was kind of the last piece and, and needed to bring to the table to really make that undeniable and clear. So I hope you enjoyed listening, and I will catch you next time here on the New Discourses Podcast.